Before we get to this week's episode, a quick program note. As regular listeners know, this fall we're running a series called Pandemic Campus Diaries. On that, we're following the stories of students and professors on six campuses around the country. They are helping us document the challenges they're facing as they're trying to keep their studies going during this unprecedented time in higher ed. That series is running every other week, so we'll be back next Tuesday with the next installment. Please subscribe to the EdSurge podcast wherever you listen so you don't miss an episode, and please support the podcast by leaving a rating or review or telling a friend on social media. This week, I'm handing the microphone to my colleague, Stephen Nunu, who has found some timely and very news-you-can-use research about Zoom and other video conferencing systems. Here's Stephen. Hello, and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, a weekly look at how education is changing. I'm Stephen Nunu, the K-12 editor here at Ed Surge. Here's a question. How many hours a day do you spend on Zoom? For many of us, that number has increased exponentially since the start of the pandemic, when education, and much of our lives for that matter, moved online. These days, it's not uncommon for students in kindergarten or college to have multiple classes or meetings on Zoom each day, which can last for hours. A few months ago, people began realizing that all these meetings were making them tired, exhausted even, more so than a full day of in-person class or all-day meetings had done. The phenomenon actually has a name. It's called Zoom fatigue, and it turns out it's a real thing, backed by some pretty interesting brain science. Back in April and May, there were a lot of articles in places like the Harvard Business Review attempting to explain why Zoom calls are so tiring, and there were plenty of reasons. We spend too much time looking at ourselves, we try and do too much multitasking, these calls require us to process too much stimuli at once. It was interesting, but none of those answers were particularly satisfying, until I came across a thought-provoking editorial in the journal Cyber Psychology, Behavior, and Social Networking, which explained how our live Zoom calls aren't as live as we think they are. The journal's editor-in-chief, Brenda Wiederhold, wrote that piece, and she's our guest this week. She's a licensed clinical psychologist who uses advanced technologies such as virtual reality to treat patients who experience trauma or stress, and she runs a nonprofit called the Interactive Media Institute, which does research into how these technologies can be applied to autism and a range of mental and physical disorders. Wiederhold joins us to discuss this fascinating brain science of Zoom fatigue, as well as her work in virtual reality. She's got some amazing tips and advice, including some easy hacks that can make our time on Zoom a lot more comfortable and productive. So if you're teaching, learning, or just meeting more often on Zoom these days, you won't want to miss this. So as you know, we're all spending a lot of time on Zoom calls these days. And I was just curious, what made you want to write a short editorial about the the topic of Zoom fatigue in the first place? Sure. So I like to find things that are, are going on in people's lives and are, are kind of topical and, and top of the envelope. And um, I had patients actually telling me and colleagues telling me, friends, family, about, you know, we're having so many video conferences, we're doing remote work, um, I'm, I'm stressed, you know, my kids have Zoom homework, they have conference calls for our webinars for their schoolwork. I'm, I'm getting really tired. I'm exhausted at the end of the day. And so I started investigating this some. And one of the first things I found was the science behind it, which uh, Jeremy Balinson, who leads the Virtual Human Interaction Lab at Stanford, 
is doing a lot of studying of this right now. They're doing a research study right now looking at this, and there's a whole science behind the reason that we're so exhausted at the end of the day if we have too many video conferences. So not just, you know, I don't, I don't mean to pick on Zoom. It's just a term that's come up on social media. So it happens whether it's Skype or webinars or, or Zoom. Right, yeah. So can you briefly explain what this concept is, this concept of Zoom fatigue? Sure. So it's when you feel tired, anxious, worried after you overuse video conferencing. And part of the reason that they're finding uh, is there's a slight lag, no matter how good your internet is, no matter how fast it is, it seems that we have this millisecond, maybe just a few milliseconds delay. So the communication isn't in real time, even though it seems like it consciously our brains subconsciously pick up on the fact that things aren't quite right. And the fact that things are out of sync and we're accustomed to them being in sync when it's person to person, face to face communication, our brains try to look for ways to overcome that lack of synchrony. And after the end of a few calls a day, it starts to become exhausting to us. Yeah, so that's really interesting. I hear the term synchronous communication, synchronous learning here in education a lot to refer to Zoom calls where the teacher is on with a class of students and they're learning live and in the moment. But you're saying that the way our brains perceive it, it is not as synchronous as it is in person? That's correct. So face-to-face, we have synchronous communication. We also have other things that help us feel good when we're face-to-face in conversations. We have releases of dopamine. We have the hormone oxytocin being secreted. So those are feel-good hormones and, and chemicals that come up. And then we have all the body language and the cues. You know, you see a person just barely move their eyes, do a micro expression, things like that. We can pick up very easily in person, but we don't always pick up those little nuances when we're on a Zoom call. And if we do pick them up, they're out of sync. So it's there's a delay. So you see a person smiling after they smiled. Yeah. And is there also an element of multitasking as we're constantly looking around the screen, searching people's faces? There is. And, you know, one of the things I tell, like clients that tell me they're getting uh, Zoom fatigue, a few of the things I tell them, and, and the first and foremost, is don't multitask. So if you're on a call, be on a call. Don't be looking at your, your phone. Don't be looking at your email. Don't be looking around, you know, playing with the animals, your, your children. Just try to focus on the call that you're on because it does exhaust you when, you, when that happens. And it's also if, if you're on a work call and somebody asks you a question and you haven't been paying attention, it becomes a little bit embarrassing. So that's uh, important. The chat function can be distracting to some people, but it can also be a nice place to link, to send document links if you're on a work call. So um, just be aware of that. I also tell people to um, maybe turn off their big screens. I found this worked for me too. I was doing a lot of calls and some people you know, when they're larger than life and and looking right at you, it's just an automatic response to kind of, for a moment, go, oh my God, you know, there's this giant floating head on my screen. And so if I leave my laptop on, then it 
doesn't seem as disconcerting to have the person on your screen. It's not, they're not as close as they are on a, you know, 50 inch screen. Yeah, from what I remember you wrote, it, it triggers this part of our brain that almost sees it as a threat to have a head in front of us that's this big. Correct. It's co what we call the fight or flight response. So you automatically, and again, this is subconscious, we automatically, when we have prolonged eye contact, that large appearance, our bodies get flooded with cortisol, with the stress hormone. And we aut automatically think there's danger, even though consciously, rationally, we know there's no danger. But just for that split second, our bodies rev up and they're going to either fight or flight. So we could be getting cortisol rushes in the middle of Zoom meetings? That, that seems wild to me. It, it's very wild. And it's um, something, again, I didn't know some of this. I, I just assumed because a, a few of my colleagues I have regular Zoom meetings with we kind of all agreed after the first few weeks, we're like, okay, you know, we don't want to fix our hair and, and put on a, you know, the guys put on a tie from the waist up and the, the women, you know, have to put on a little makeup to do this. We're all going to agree not to have our cameras on anymore. And it was pretty amazing. Just that little thing. We started reporting to each other that we weren't as tired after the Zooms. And a lot of my clients even, I mean, I would not do it with newer patients because I think we need that connection, even though it isn't synchronous. But patients that I've had for a while, if they say, Brenda, we don't want the camera on today, I'm like, okay, works for me too. So that raises a really interesting point. There's a really big debate these days about schools that are requiring students, whether they're universities or K-12 schools, to leave their cameras on so they can be more accountable to teachers. But for all sorts of different reasons, there's been some pushback on that, that students shouldn't be required to keep their cameras on. Do you have any thoughts about requiring it versus having the option? You know, it, that's a tough one for the younger children because part of what we know is that when children are very young their brains do take in it they take it in differently if a person is face to face with them talking versus a recording of a person talking and they've even done studies as young as nine months old children that listen to another language face to face so the person is actually there talking to them they recognize that even later on, so several months later, they their brains have picked up and they recognize that. But if the person is talking on an audio recording, a video recording, their brains don't pick it up and retain that knowledge the same way. So I'm not certain um, if the younger children, if anybody's done this study and if there is proof that they would need to, but I can see young, uh, older people, older uh, students, college or high school age, I can understand and I would be more accepting of them not wanting to leave the camera on. I think there is a big um, push and, and I know even on Zoom, you know, I mean, Zoom has been hacked. And when I'm at home and speaking on Zoom, I do have that concern sometimes and I can imagine children or, you know, adolescents, young adults, having a worry about privacy. I can, I can see them 
maybe being embarrassed by their their house or their background or not being able to have that privacy. So yeah, it's it's a tough one. I would sway probably on the side of having them have that option to turn it off, but um, I am not an educator per se. I mean, I'm a visiting professor, but I, I teach, you know, graduate students that are, they kind of come to class or if they don't come to class, they have their cameras on still and they, they like to have their cameras on. Yeah. So there were some simple fixes that you wrote about, including just bringing your camera up to eye level. Can you explain how that works? Sure. So um, newscasters have done this naturally for a long time, but really it's probably not natural for them in the beginning. It's what we call learned behavior. Like anything else, you create a behavior or a habit by doing it over and over. So when you do a Zoom call, you're automatically drawn to those smiling faces, but you need to really be looking at your camera. And so if you put your computer where your camera is right at eye level, you're going to be more prone to be able to look right at that camera. And to the other person, it seems like you're looking at them. And so that's going to bring in a little bit more of that social connection. And if you are looking at that person or, you know, if, if there's the, the big screen of all the faces around you, if you're looking at all the faces instead of your camera when you're talking, it almost looks like you're looking somewhere else and not paying attention. Yeah, so that could be really big for teachers uh, who need to hold their students' attention and create kind of an authority presence. Exactly, exactly. And there's other things like when you're uh, doing a Zoom call with your camera on, you want to really have your your neck, shoulders, head all in the frame. You don't want to be seated too low. So you want to kind of frame just the upper part of you in that frame. And so teachers need to remember that. They need to have that full frame so their, their head not too low. So they may need to move their seat higher or adjust their computer. Um, they want to look at lighting, you know, make sure that you're not in a dark room so the students can't really get a good picture of you. Um, you know, front lighting is best. So you don't want the lighting coming from behind you. You'd rather have it in front of you. You want to speak louder than you normally would. So that kind of tends to make people think you have more self-confidence, more authority, and you're projecting better. Plus, it, it makes you understood and more audible. Um, so you want to remember all those sorts of things. If it is a question, answer, or discussion class also, the teacher wants to give ample time. You know, again, you have those pregnant pauses, but you want to kind of pause and let the students know that it's their turn to speak. Uh, so when you talked about learned behaviors before, does that mean that this is something that will appear strange or unnatural to educators? And is this something that they need to practice? It will appear um, less comfortable for them and, and maybe even obvious to their students in the beginning. But with time, what we know is most of these things will become easier. It's just like public speaking. I have a lot of patients that have a fear of public speaking, 
even on a Zoom call, it's not so easy maybe to speak if there's five, 10, 20 people, but it becomes easier over time as you practice and as you use certain skills. Uh, one of the skills I teach all of my patients that come in, whether it's a five-year-old child with autism or whether it's a, an elite performer, I teach them how to do diaphragmatic breathing. So teaching them just to slow down their physiology by doing that nice, slow, controlled breathing, and then having that carry over and make them appear calmer. And then once their brains start feeling calmer and their bodies following or their bodies feel calmer and their brains follow, they exude that calm to the rest of the people on the call. And so teachers can learn that and start to feel more comfortable. Yeah, so another tip kind of seems a little self-evident, which is just to limit the amount of video conferencing that you do, and it sounds like you found that helpful in your experience as well. Absolutely. What I say is moderation in most things is the key. Um, So while it is good to have that social connection, that interactivity, because we're social beings, we don't do well when we're isolated Um, and studies have shown that it's being isolated socially is almost like fasting so we do need to have that but we also need to remember kind of our boundary and our limits and each of us will be a little bit different Um, if you've had a stressful week and it's already Friday may not be a day that you want to have lots of video conferencing going on. So you, you need to learn and adapt and do what works for you. Yeah. So I wanted to talk a little about virtual reality and whether it holds promise for one day replacing the Zoom call as we know it. Do you have any thoughts about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the funny thing Stephen is, again, I've been doing virtual reality for 25 years, and some, some people, maybe a lot of your, your readers and listeners um, are millennials, so they don't realize that virtual reality was around in the 90s. Uh, but we had something called digital space, which preceded Second Life or any of the other online worlds. And all you could do is make an avatar head. So you could create your own avatar head. And you could emote. So you were happy, sad, surprised, angry. And one day I got asked to speak at a conference in digital space. And there were something like 10,000 participants. And so all I saw were these bobbing heads in front of me. But as I began to speak, I became totally immersed or present in that world. And it was like I was really talking to that big of a crowd. It was a wild experience. And so now there are places like a new company I've heard of in the research for this is Spatial. And Spatial has the ability, you you can go on there for free right now during the pandemic and create a virtual avatar and you can enter with your head mounted display on and shake hands with people, collaborate with people across the world, do do different work-related or social-related tasks interactively in that world. And it gives you that sense, more of that sense of being there. Now, the problem right now is if you don't have a head mount, you're just kind of a floating 2D object. But if you have a head mount, which, again, 
they're becoming less and less expensive. You're able to really have a full body and emote when you speak. You can see the eye blinks. So I think this could be the future as the technology becomes less expensive and more accessible. This could be the future and kind of supersede some of these um, video conferencing that we have right now. Right, yeah. Do you have any favorite virtual reality technology that you're using right now? Um, you know, I'm, I'm one of those people that uh, uses everything. Right now, I have an Oculus Rift, an Oculus Quest. I had an Oculus Go, but unfortunately, those won't be around much longer. I have a Pico. I have Google Cardboard. I have HTC Vive. And I have Vuzix, which not as many, and, and Sony, Sony VR uh, head mount for their PlayStation. But not as many people know about Vuzix, but they have been one of those companies that's held on for the past two decades. And they've really rolled with the punches. And right now they're going to go more for enterprise. But I'll tell you, their head mount's pretty amazing, very lightweight and good visual resolution. So I... I don't really have a favorite. I like them all, um, but I do like the ones that are lighter weight. And what kind of apps and programs do you typically use? Um, I I don't do a whole lot for entertainment. Um, I, I say I'm a technophobe on that, but um, I, I usually use the worlds for either training, so doing the stress inoculation training or doing therapy. And we've created, at Virtual Reality Medical Center, we've created 220 virtual reality worlds. About 110 of those have been clinically validated. The others have been used in pilot studies or they've been, we've received funding from the uh, EU government or the, um, the US government to develop those but haven't tested them yet. So I use a lot of the worlds we make in-house and then I have been um, more recently trying some new worlds that are created both in Europe and the US. Uh, one company is Oxford VR. I've been using some of their apps and they're pretty amazing because they're going towards, um, in Europe, they're, they've always been a little bit ahead of us on, on self-treatment or on prevention than we have in the US. And these worlds are meant to be used with a paraprofessional almost. So you don't need a fully licensed clinical psychologist to see you for some of these disorders like fear of heights. You can actually go to a clinic and have a person that has um, maybe a bachelor's degree putting on the head mount and letting you go through that a lot on your own. So almost automatizing some of this treatment. And one of the reasons that's so important is that we know, especially with the pandemic, we don't have enough of trained therapist. So worldwide, we have less trained therapists than there is a need for. So we have this tsunami coming of people with mental health disorders caused, triggered by or exacerbated by the coronavirus. Really fascinating work. Thank you so much, Brenda, for joining us. Well, thank you. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. Each week, we feature conversations like this one. So please consider subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get podcasts. And take a moment to give us a like or a share on social media if you can. This episode was edited by me, Stephen Unu, and produced by my colleague, Jeff Young. We'll be back next week with another installment of Jeff's Pandemic Campus Diaries series.
so please stay tuned. Till then. <laughs>